In this episode, I'm going to be reading What Katie Did Next, Chapter the Third, Rose and Rosebud. Chapter the Fourth On the Spartacus A few hours out ahead wind lay waiting in the offing, and the Spartacus began to pitch and toss in a manner which made all her unseasoned passengers glad to betake themselves to their berths. Mrs. Ash and Amy were among the earliest victims of seasickness, and Katie, after helping them to settle in their state rooms, found herself too dizzy and ill to sit up a moment longer, and thankfully resorted to her own. As the night came on and the wind grew stronger and the motion worse, The Spartacus had the reputation of being a dreadful roller and seemed bound to justify it on this particular voyage. The night seemed endless, for she was too frightened to sleep except in broken snatches. And when day dawned and she looked through the little round pane of glass in the port hall. Only grey sky and grey weltering waves and flying spray and rain met her view. Oh dear, why do people ever go to sea unless they must? She thought feebly to herself. She wanted to get up and see how Mrs. Ash had lived through the night but the attempt to move made her so miserably ill that she was glad to sink again on her pillows. The stewardess looked in with offers of tea and toast, the very idea of which was simply dreadful and pronounced the other lady horribly ill worse than you are miss and the little girl soon had an audible proof for as her dizzy senses rallied a little she could hear amy in the opposite stateroom crying and sobbing pitifully she seemed to be angry as well as sick for she was scolding her poor mother in the most feminine fashion I hate being at sea, Katie heard her say. I won't stay in this nasty old ship. Mama, Mama, do you hear me? I won't stay in this ship. It wasn't a bit kind of you to bring me to such a horrid place. It was very unkind. It was cruel. I want to go back, Mama. Tell the captain to take me back to the land. Mama! Why don't you speak to me? Oh, I am so sick and so very unhappy. 
Don't you wish you were dead? I do. And then came another storm of sobs, but never a sound from Mrs. Ash, who, Katie suspected, was too ill to speak. She felt very sorry for poor little Amy, raging there in her high berth. She could only resign herself to her own discomforts and try to believe that somehow, sometime, this state of things must mend. Either they should all get to land or or go to the bottom and be drowned. And at that moment, she didn't care very much, which it turned out to be. The gale increased as the day wore on, and the vessel pitched dreadfully. Twice, Katie was thrown out of her berth on the floor. Then the stewardess came and fixed a sort of movable side to the berth, which held her in, but made her feel like a child fastened into a railed crib. At intervals, she could still hear Amy crying and scolding her mother and conjectured that they were having a dreadful time of it on the other state room. It was all like a bad dream, and they call this travelling for pleasure, thought poor Katie. During the night, the gale abated, the sea became smoother, and she dropped asleep. When she woke, the sun was struggling through the clouds, and she felt better. The stewardess opened the porthole to freshen the air and helped her to wash her face and smooth her tangled hair. Then she produced a little basin of gruel and a triangular piece of toast. And Katie found that her appetite was come again and she could eat. She managed to struggle into her dressing gown and slippers and across the entry to Mrs. Ash's stateroom. Amy had fallen asleep at last and must not be waked up, so their interview was conducted in whispers. Mrs. Ash had by no means got to the tea and toast stage yet and was feeling miserable enough. I have had the most dreadful time with Amy, she said, all day yesterday. When she wasn't sick, she was raging at me from the upper berth and I too ill to say a word in reply. I never knew her so naughty and it seemed very neglectful not to come to see after you, poor dear child. But really, I couldn't raise my head. Neither could I. And I felt just as guilty not to be taking care of you, said Katie. Well, the worst is over with all of us, I hope, 
The vessel doesn't pitch half so much now. And the stewardess says, We shall feel a great deal better as soon as we get on deck. She is coming presently to help me up. And when Amy wakes, won't you let her be dressed? And I will take care of her while Mrs. Barrett attends to you. I don't think I can be dressed, sighed poor Mrs. Ash. I feel as if I should just lie here till we get to Liverpool. Oh, no. Indeed, Mum. No, you won't put in Mrs. Barrett, who at the moment appeared gruel cup in hand. I don't never let my ladies line their berths a moment longer than there's need of. I always get them on deck as soon as possible to get the hair. It's the best medicine you can have, ma'am. The best air, indeed, it is. Stewardesses are all powerful on board ship, and Mrs. Barrett was so persuasive, as well as positive, that it was not possible to resist her. She got Katie in her dress and wraps, and seated her on deck in a chair with a great rug wrapped about her feet. Then she dived down the companion way again, and in the course of an hour, escorting a big burly steward who carried poor little pale Amy in his arms as easily as though she had been a kitten. Amy gave a scream of joy at the sight of Katie and cuddled down in her lap under the warm rug with a sigh of relief and satisfaction. I thought I was never going to see you again, she said with a little squeeze. Oh, Miss Katie, it has been so horrid. I never thought that going to Europe meant such dreadful things as this. This is only the beginning. We shall get across the sea in a few days and then we shall find out what's going to Europe really means. But what made you behave so, Amy, and cry and scold poor Mama when she was sick? I could hear you all the way across the entry. Could you? Then why didn't you come to me? I wanted to, but I was sick too. So sick that I couldn't move. But why were you so naughty? You didn't tell me. I didn't mean to be naughty, but I couldn't help crying. You would have cried too, and so would Johnny, if you had been cooped up in a dreadful old berth at the top of the wall that you couldn't get out of and hadn't had anything to eat and nobody to bring you any water when you wanted some. 
and Mama wouldn't answer when I called to her. She couldn't answer. She was too ill, explained Katie. Well, my pet, it was pretty hard for you. I hope we shan't have any more such days. The sea is a great deal smoother now. A good many passengers had come up by this time, and Robert, the deck steward, was going about, train hand, taking orders for lunch. Amy and Katie both felt suddenly ravenous. And when Mrs. Ash, a while later, was helped up the stairs, she was amazed to find them eating cold beef and roasted potatoes with the finest appetites in the world. They had served out their apprenticeships, the kindly old captain told them, and were made free of the nautical guild from that time on. So it proved, for after these two bad days, none of the party were sick again during the voyage. Amy had a clamorous appetite for stories as well as for cold beef, and to appease this craving, Katie started a sort of ocean serial called The History of Violet and Emma, which she meant to make last till they got to Liverpool, but which in reality lasted much longer. It might with equal propriety have been called The Adventures of Two Little Girls who didn't have any adventures. For nothing in particular happened to either Violet or Emma during the whole course of their long drawn out history. Amy, however, found them perfectly enchanting and was never weary of hearing how they went to school and came home again how they got into scrapes and got out of them, how they made good resolutions and broke them, about their Christmas presents and birthday treats and what they said and how they felt. The first instalment of this unexciting romance was given that first afternoon on deck. And after that, Amy claimed a new chapter daily, and it was a chief ingredient of her pleasure during the voyage. On the third morning, Katie woke and dressed so early that she gained the deck before the sailors had finished their scrubbing and holy stoning. She took refuge within the companion way and sat down on the top step of the ladder to wait till the deck was dry enough to venture upon it. There the captain found her and drew near for a talk. 
Captain Bryce was exactly the kind of sea captain that is found in storybooks, but not always in real life. He was stout and grizzled and brown and kind. He had a buff, weather-beaten face, lit up with a pair of shrewd blue eyes which twinkled when he was pleased and his manner though it was full of habit of command was quiet and pleasant he was a martinet on board his ship not a sailor under him would have dared dispute his orders for a moment but he was very popular with them notwithstanding they liked him as much as they feared him for they knew him to be their best friend if it came to sickness or trouble with any of them katie and he grew quite intimate during their long morning talk the captain liked girls he had one of his own about Katie's age and was fond of talking about her. Lucy was his mainstay at home, he told Katie. Her mother had been weakly. Now this long term back and Bess and Nanny were but children yet. So Lucy had to take command and keep things ship shape when he was away. She'll be on the lookout when the steamer comes in, said the captain. There's a signal we've arranged which means all's well. And when we get up the river a little way, I always look to see if it's flying. It's a bit of a towel hung from a particular window. And when I see it, I say to myself, yes. Another voyage safely done, and no harm come of it. It's a sad kind of work for a man to go off for a 24-day cruise, leaving a sick wife on shore behind him. If it wasn't that I have Lucy to look after things, I should have thrown up my command long ago. Indeed. I am glad you have Lucy. She must be a great comfort to you, said Katie sympathetically, for the captain's hearty voice trembled a little as he spoke. She made him tell her the colour of Lucy's hair and eyes, and exactly how tall she was, and what she had studied, what sort of book she liked. She seemed such a very nice girl, and Katie thought she should like to know her. Later in the morning, Katie, going down to her stateroom for something, came across a pallid, exhausted-looking lady who lay stretched on one of the long sofas in the cabin with a baby in her arms and a little girl sitting at her feet, quite still, 
with a pair of small hands folded in her lap. The little girl did not seem to be more than four years old. She had two pigtails of thick flaxen hair hanging over her shoulders, and at Katie's approach, raised a pair of solemn blue eyes, which had so much appeal in them that Katie stopped at once. Can I do anything for you? she asked. I'm afraid you have been very ill. At the sound of her voice, the lady on the sofa opened her eyes. She tried to speak, but to Katie's dismay, began to cry instead. And when the words came, they were strangled with sobs. You are so kind to ask, she said, if you would give me, my little girl, something to eat. She has nothing since yesterday, and I have been so ill, and nobody has c- come near us. Oh, cried Katie with horror, nothing to eat since yesterday. How did it happen? Everybody has been sick on our side of the ship, explained the poor lady, and I suppose the stewardess thought, as I had a maid with me, that I needed her less than the others, but my maid has been sick too, and her so selfish. She wouldn't even take the baby into the berth with her, and I've had all I could do to manage with him when I couldn't lift up my head. Little Gretchen has had to go without anything, and she's been so good and patient. Katie lost no time, but ran for Mrs. Barrett, whose indignation knew no bounds when she heard how the helpless party had been neglected. It's a new person that's to a dis is, ma'am, she explained, and most inefficient. I told the captain when she came aboard that I didn't have much opinion of her, and now he'll see how it is. I'm ashamed that such a thing should happen on the Spartacus, ma'am. I am indeed. It never would have happened under Eliza, ma'am. She's the one that went off and got herself married the trip before last, when this person came to take her place. All the time that she talked, Mrs. Barrett was busy in making Mrs. Ware, for that, it seemed, was the sick lady's name, more comfortable. And Katie was feeding Gretchen out of a big bowl full of bread and milk, which one of the stewards had brought. The little uncomplaining thing was evidently half-starved, but with the mouthfuls, the pink began to steal back into her cheeks and lips, and the dark circles lessened under the blue eyes. 
By the time the bottom of the bowl was reached, she could smile, but still, she said not a word, except a whispered, "Dunker." Her mother explained that she had been born in Germany, and always had till now been cared for by a German nurse, so that she knew the language better than English. Gretchen was a great amusement to Katie and Amy during the rest of the voyage. They kept her on deck with them a great deal. And she was perfectly content with them, and very good, though always solemn and quiet. Pleasant people turned up among the passengers, as always happens on an ocean steamship, and others not so pleasant, perhaps, who were rather curious and interesting to watch. On the whole. There was no one on the Spartacus whom Katie liked so well as to date little Gretchen, except the dear old captain, with whom she was a prime favourite. He gave Mrs. Ashe and herself the seats next to him at table, looked after their comfort in every possible way. And each night at dinner, sent Katie one of the apple dumplings, made specially for him by the cook, who had gone many voyages with the captain, and knew his fancies. Katie did not care particularly for the dumpling, but she valued it as a mark of regard, and always aided when she could. Katie never forgot the thrill that went through her when, after so many days at sea, her eyes first caught sight of the dim line of the Irish coast. An exciting and interesting day followed as, after stopping at Queenstown to leave the mails, they sped northeastwards between shores. Which grew more distinct and beautiful with every hour. On one side, Ireland; on the other, the bold mountain lines of the Welsh coast. It was late afternoon when they entered the Mersey, and dusk had fallen before the captain got out his glass to look for the white, fluttering speck. In his own window, which meant so much to him. Long he studied before he made quite sure that it was there. At last, he shut the glass with a satisfied air. The moon had risen, and was shining softly on the river as the crowded tender landed the passengers from the Spartacus. At the Liverpool docks, we shall meet again in London or in Paris," said one to another, and cards and addresses were exchanged. 
Then, after a brief delay at the customs, they separated, each to their own particular destination. Four-wheeler or handsome man," said a porter to Mrs. Ash. "Which, Katie? Oh, let us have a handsome. I never saw one, and they look so nice in punch." So, a handsome cab was called. The two ladies got in. Amy cuddled down between them. The folding doors were shut over their knees, like a lap robe, and always they drove up the solidly paved streets to the hotel, where they were to pass the night. It was too late to see. Or do anything but enjoy the sense of being on firm land once more. How lovely it will be to sleep in a bed that doesn't tip or roll from side to side," said Mrs. Ash. "Yes, and one that is wide enough and long enough, but it is also soft enough to be comfortable." Replied Katie, "I feel as if I could sleep for a fortnight to make up for the bad nights at sea." Everything seemed delightful to her: the space for undressing, the great tub of fresh water which stood beside the English-looking washstand, with its ample basin and ewer. The chintz curtain bed, the coolness, the silence, and she closed her eyes with the pleasant thought in her mind: "It is really England, and we are really here." Sadly, all good things must come to an end. So I bid you good night, sleep tight, and don't let the bedbugs bite.